Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Lots to discuss. I really want to discuss this idea of the kiss, the kiss of Asav, and what challenge that poses for us today. You know, whatever is going on in the Torah is going on right now in our own lives. And that's just part of the amazingness of what the Torah is, the fact that it's like ever current. And yet it seems to be the same text. And yet it's brand new every time you look at it. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. So what is this kiss that Esav gives Yaakov? Just to give it a little bit more context, something like, I think it's 22 years have passed since Esav has said, that's of course Yaakov's twin brother, since Esav has said, I'm going to kill you. And now he's finally coming back to Israel. And he's told that Esav, his brother, is waiting for him after all these years with 400 soldiers. So it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And it's, it actually says that Yaakov was frightened and it distressed him. He was distressed that it frightened him. In other words... And I've experienced this in my own life, and and maybe you have as well, which is that if you really believe in God, how can you be worried about anything? I mean, it's a very good question. How can you be worried about anything if you genuinely believe in God? That means that there's some aspect of a person that thinks that maybe God isn't either in control of absolutely everything, or perhaps God isn't completely good, that there's some aspect that's out to get me, right? Or perhaps, you know, that we've done something wrong, not to merit the fullness of the divine protection or or something like that. But anyway, it distressed Yaakov that he was frightened because he felt like he should be beyond being frightened, right? He should just be able to accept with would love anything that's that's happening in his life. But when he hears that the one who's sworn to kill him is waiting for him all these years later with 400 soldiers, it he's scared. And you know something? If Yaakov Avina can be scared, I think on some level we can be scared too. So in other words, in terms of not what we aspire to be, but maybe just a bit of a reality check and and putting, you know, us and our present spiritual level, whatever it is, in context of his. And so, you know, it's if you're scared of what's going on in your life, of what's going on in the world, you know what that makes you? A human being. You know, you, you have been diagnosed professionally as human. So... It's good to know that that someone as great as Yaakov went through this as well. That's all. Anyway, so Yaakov prepares for all these eventualities in terms of how to confront Esav, how to make this right. Because really the best case scenario is that you don't just avoid the wrath of your enemy, but that you turn your enemy into a friend. Well, of course, Given the greatness of Yaakov, that actually is what happens. Bishuman Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar, says that Esav actually gives a genuine, sincere kiss to Yaakov. There's a very 
different opinion that we're going to get to in a moment of what the nature of that kiss was, which is the opposite of a sincere kiss. The point is that Yaakov sends gifts and he prays and he prepares for war. And our sages say that, that those are the three things that, that a person has to do when they're put into this life and death situation. And it says that Rebbe, who is in charge of the Jewish people, this is in the times of the Talmud, whenever he had like a meeting with the Roman authorities, that he would study this chapter because Esav's de- descendants eventually become the Roman Empire. And so contained in the Torah chapter here is a blueprint of how to deal with authorities who are threatening us in a very existential way. So here's another question. Fascinating, fascinating gematria that that I've been delving into that I heard from my good friend Bencion. And he said, he discovered, I've never heard this before, it's amazing, that the gematria of Esav, remember, Esav is just the embodiment on one level, says Rashi, of the Yetzirah, right? The evil inclination. He's also a human being with his human side as well, as we're going to see. So isn't it fascinating that the gematria of Esav is the same number as the word shalom, which means peace. Not just peace, but it's one of God's names. That's, that's amazing. So let's just get right to that. The simple answer is because Esav stands for all of the obstacles that will come our way until we ultimately have peace, until we have shalom, which will be in the end of days, right? When all obstacles will disappear and when we'll understand that all obstacles that came our way were only to bring us to a higher place and to this greater peace. So that's why Esav equals Shalom, right? It's not that Esav is Shalom now. If you look at it that way, then it's a very perplexing gematria. But no, it's deeper than that. Esav, all the obstacles that we confront in our lives are just roadblocks along the way and ways of just lifting us higher until we get to that final ultimate peace. Okay. Now, I want to ask another question, because we're going to answer all these questions together. The other question is, you have something sort of mysterious. Yaakov, before he confronts Esav in person, before this kiss that I was referring to, he takes all of his possessions and his family members, actually his family members first, and then his possessions, and he puts them over the Yabok River, And then he realizes that he's missing these small jugs. And he comes back across the river in order to get these remaining possessions. Like, what's going on there? What what does that mean on a deeper level? Not only that, but we're always reading this Parsha around the time of Hanukkah. That these were the little jars of oil that eventually the miracle of Hanukkah were done with. Not only that, but even teachings that the Hanukkah miracle was done with the olives from the olive branch (coughs) that the dove brought back to Noah. Isn't that fascinating? And then it was handed down from person to person until it got to Yaakov. 
and then eventually the Maccabees found it buried, and that's what the miracle of the Hanukkah lights was done with. So Yaakov comes back across this river, which is going to have a, a very amazing teaching attached to it in a moment. And that's where he sees the man, this mysterious man who's only identified by the word ish, right, which is Hebrew for man. And it says, Yaakov was all alone and he wrestled with the man. And Rashi famously points out that that quote-unquote man was actually the angel of Esav and was the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. And then this Yetzirah, this negative force, was not able to overcome Jacob. And he gives him this name, Israel. Right? So we've got a big question, which is a little bit later on in the Parsha, God says this same thing that the angel said. Seemingly, it's a little bit different. He says, your name is not going to be Jacob, but in the future, it's going to be Israel. Now, I don't know if you know this expression. It's one of my favorite expressions, which is stealing someone's thunder, right? That's when someone's got like great news to tell you, but you tell it first. Like, that's not a nice thing to do, by the way. So is that what the angel did to God? It's like, God's got some big news. Here's the big news. Your name's going to be Israel in the future. Ah, oh, the angel beat me to it, right? So that that can't be it, obviously. So what's going on with this double telling of the name to Jacob? Okay, so before we go deeper into it, I just want to tell you about the Yabok River. That's the name of the river that, that Yaakov took his family over and all of his possessions over and then returned back. And that's where this wrestling match takes place. So the Opter Rebbe, now the Opter Rebbe was one of the greatest Hasidic masters. And if you've been to the, the kever, the gravestone of the Baal Shem Tov, then you've also been to the kever of the Opter Rav, because he's buried about five feet away from the Baal Shem Tov. And I remember when I was by the Baal Shem a, a few years ago, there was some, this like bench off, to, you know, against the wall. And I remember I was sitting there and then I see that there's this book, the Oiv Yisrael, that's, you know, one of the great Hasidic uh, sfarm. So I just, I go, oh, okay, yeah. I'll just kind of pick that up. I know that book. That's by the Opter Rebbe. And then I realized that the, that the book was on top of the grave of the Opter Rebbe. So, ah! You know, it's like I didn't, there was just the book. He's right there. So that was a little bit shocking. But anyway, he was sort of the dean of the Rebbe's at that time. And he moved his headquarters to Mezhebush. And in fact, his, his base medrash has been wonderfully restored. And it's a short walk from where the Ohel, where the Baal Shem Tov is buried. You can, you can go there and then it's halfway between where the Baal Shem Tov is buried and where the Baal Shem Tov's base medrash and shul is. So they're all kind of mixed together there, and it's very, very much worth going to. In fact, when the war stops in the Ukraine, if you haven't been to Uman, you can go to the Baal Shem Tov and you can go to Rebbe Nachman. They're about four hours apart. And I had this wonderful opportunity. That year, it was the year right before the pandemic, Rosh Hashanah was starting Sunday night. So I was able to go to the Baal Shem Tov for Shabbos, and then we left. 
We left him, and then we were in time for Rosh Hashanah by Rebbe Nachman in Uman. It's a, an amazing trip, highly recommended. So anyway, what does the Opta Rebbe say about the Yabok River, this river that, that Yaakov Avinu takes all of his possessions across? Okay, so now we're going to go deeper. Basically, everybody knows that if you were to take a spiritual x-ray of the world, that you'd see 10 spherot. So these 10 spherot are different headquarters of energy, and they combine to create the material physical universe. So now the 10 spherot, if you think of from the top to the bottom, can be divided up into three sections. You have the top three, that's one section. You have the middle six, that's a second section. And you have the bottom one, that's the third section. Okay, so the top three are super exalted. That's Hachma, Bina, and Das. And the first letters of that spell out the word Chabad. That's where the name Chabad comes from. These top three exalted Sphira. Very good. And then you've got the middle six. And when they're grouped together, they go by the name Zer Anpin. That's what the middle six are called when they're grouped together. And then you have the bottom one is called Machus, which is the name of the dimension that we inhabit. And our job is to reveal the God that's already here. So a lot of people think that, you know, <laughs> that they're trying to summon God down. And, you know, there's... There's something to that. But really, God 100% fills this realm that we inhabit. God is equally here as he is in the highest dimensions. So what we're trying to do is reveal God's presence. That's, that's a very important conceptual breakthrough. And I think I shared this teaching with you. I heard it from Rabbi Manus Friedman, but it's good to hear again, which is when you make a blessing over a cookie, a lot of people think that the cookie is this spiritually inert entity, and you've just made a bracha, so you've now infused it with kedusha, with holiness. But that's not really true, because God, who fills the world, fills everything within it as well, including the cookie. So, so that being the case, the cookie is not just this inert entity. So then what are you doing by saying a blessing, you are revealing God's presence that's already there. So a nice bit of imagery is that after you take a shower and your mirror steams up from the fog and then you wipe away the steam and then it's clear again. So when we say bruchas, we are not creating God's presence, we are revealing God's presence. And that's any time we do a mitzvah. Right? We're revealing the God that already is so close. Okay, let's get back to this ten sphero. So you've got the upper three, the middle six, and the lower one where we inhabit. Now, each of these three sections has a divine name associated with it. What do you think those three names add up to? And the answer is 112. So believe it or not, the Yabok River, you know what number that word is? 112. <laughs> so you know what the Apta Rebbe says? 
that Yaakov was uplifting everything in his life from his relationships to everything that he owned with the utmost, utmost, utmost spirituality. 112, that's taking it all the way to the top. And now this is me talking. I think maybe, maybe what's going on here is Yaakov is wondering why after all these years and after all the mitzvahs that he's done and after all the character refinement and you know everything you would expect from like the greatest tzaddik ever, how could it be that Esav is still waiting for me with 400 men? How could it be? It must be that there's some spiritual work that I still need to do or that I haven't done. Now, I heard from Reb Shlomo that Yaakov was the richest person that ever lived. I heard him say that. And I wonder if it's not based on the fact that when he finally does meet Esav, he gives Esav all these gifts, and Esav says, like turns it down, then he accepts it. But at first he turns it down and he says, I have plenty. And Yaakov says, I have everything. Isn't that interesting? Esav says, I have plenty. And Yaakov says, I have everything. And, you know, I was discussing that with my wife and she just cut, she just like fired a, <laughs> an arrow and just hit the bullseye. She just said, right, because if you have Hashem, you have everything. Like, you know, no, no further explanation needed. <laughs> Next question. You know, it's, so, but it happened to me that on a, on, a, on a material level, he also had more than anyone ever, right? But that is the bottom line, and that is the proper way to learn out what Yaakov was saying. He wasn't bragging. He was saying, I have everything, right? If you have God, you have everything. Okay, so maybe what's going on here is Yaakov is saying, what work do I have left to do? Why am I being confronted with this opposition? And not just an opposition, an existential threat. It's 400 soldiers who are looking to kill my entire family. What does he need 400 soldiers just to kill me for? It's going to take out everything. So Yaakov has all these possessions, which is normally speaking the realm of Esav. See, when Yitzchak gives the blessing to Yaakov, he's blessing him with material possessions. So Yaakov is getting the blessing not only for spirituality, but also for materiality. So maybe what's going on with Jacob is he's wondering, have I sufficiently taken that blessing and fulfilled it in the proper way? In other words, I was blessed with the blessing of Esav and now Esav is confronting me and wants to kill me. Maybe I haven't taken the blessing of Esav in the proper way so that the Esavness of the blessing is now coming against me. Do you understand? So he takes all of his possessions and his family members, his family members first, 
and he brings it over this river, which is the number 112, which is all 10 sphere round. He lifts it all and infuses it with the highest spirituality so that he's in control of the materiality. It's not in control of him. And now he comes across the river. Now listen to what the Bad Ayan says. The Bad Ayan was a great Hasidic master. He was a student of the Berdichever Rebbe. He was a student of the Chernobyl Rebbe and his son. And then he was the chief rabbi of Tzfat during the most traumatic period in Tzfat's history when there was the terrible earthquakes that basically destroyed the city. And everyone wanted to leave Tzfat. It was not going to be inhabited anymore. But only because of his leadership and his righteousness did the community remain in Tzfat. He played a very important role in Jewish history. Listen, listen to what he says. He says that when he wrestled the angel, and again, the Torah refers to this angel as an ish, as a man. How do you spell ish? This is the Bad Ayin talking. Well, it has two letters in it, yud and shin. It's aleph, yud, shin. But he's concentrating on the yud and the shin, which means yesh. Yesh is Hebrew for to have, possessions. Then interesting. In other words, the wrestling match hasn't finished yet. He's wrestling against the yesh, these possessions. Now, the Badain goes further. You know, one of the themes that we've been talking about for a while now in these talks, and it's something that I want everyone to really think about in their own lives, because it's really kind of like the headquarters of the work that we have to do on ourselves. And I don't hear people talking about it so much, but the Rebbe's are all talking about it, okay? Which is this idea of the Orla around our hearts. We have this encasement, this blockage around our hearts. Now, Orla is usually just, when you think about an Orla, you usually just think about that's that little piece of skin that's taken off a baby boy on the eighth day. But this same word Orla, which applies to men and women both, is taught to us that we have this orla around our hearts and that we've got to get rid of it. There's a commandment to get rid of it. So the Bad Ayan says the following, that the more materialistic we are, and, you know, it creeps in incrementally, you eat a little bit more food than you actually need. Really, really. I know, these words that I'm saying are not easy. And believe me, I'm speaking to myself right now because I eat more than I need to. You know, I mean, among other, among other faults. But every time you yesh yourself, if you will, we add to the orla around our hearts. That's what the Bat Ayin says. Well, now the Bat Ayin interestingly quotes the Optorav. And it's an amazing thing. He says the following If you take the opening words of this Parsha, it says that Yaakov sent angels. And of course, Rashi famously points out actual angels. Don't read it as messengers, actual angels. He sent angels to Asaph. So if you take the first letter of those four words, you ready for this? 
It spells the word Vyima. And you know what Vyima means? And he circumcised. <laughs> Meaning he sent angels to circumcise the heart of Asaph. That amazing. But I'll tell you something even more interesting. We think that Yaakov circumcised his heart, which is what he was doing during this fight with the angel. He was getting rid of all of that materiality, all of that blockage. But the Bat Ayan says that if you circumcise your heart, that sends a domino effect of energy to the people around you and their hearts get circumcised as well. So, you know, there are ripple effects. This is why it's so important that if you really want to improve a relationship, work on yourself first. It's so easy to tell everybody what they're doing wrong. And by the way, there's probably a place for that at some point in the process. I'm not saying don't do that, you know? But first and foremost, start with yourself. Because if you circumcise your own heart, it's going to have an effect on the people around you. And we see what happens when Yaakov finally meets after he uplifts all of his possessions, after he wrestles with the angel of Esau, he wrestles with Yesh, with all this idea of, what do I have? What does anybody have? All we have is God in the end. God is the only thing that exists. And imagine the level that Yaakov is already holding on before any of this starts. I mean, he's already in the stratosphere of stratospheres, which is just a lesson to us that nobody's done until our last breath. Please, please, please don't think of yourself as a finished product. If you think of yourself as a finished product and all you want to do is like maintain your level, okay, I'm there, I just got to just got to stay there, you're deluding yourself. There's growth to your last breath. And we see it with Yaakov here. Yaakov is already holding at the heights of the heights of the heights of heaven. And he's working on himself to his bones at this moment. And it's life and death at this moment. And then what happens? He meets Esav and Esav gives him a kiss. Now, this word kiss appears in different places in the Torah, but this kiss is different from the other kisses that we read about. And the reason is because the sages instructed, now, you don't tamper with the Torah scroll. That's like the letter by letter, the word of God. So if you're making any extra marks in a Torah scroll, that means that the rabbis were, as Rabbi Green put it one time, desperate to communicate. They were desperate to communicate. And every once in a while, there will be little dots above on top of a word. Doesn't happen too often. It's very rare. But this word kiss, that Esav kissed Yaakov after this whole confrontation, that has dots above the word, which, which are the sages telling us, pay very, very, very special attention to that word. Okay, now in the beginning of this talk, I told you that there were two very different interpretations of what this kiss was. And I told you that according to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar, 
that he says that it was a genuine kiss. But you know something? That's a little bit complicated that he says that it was a genuine kiss. Why? Because he is the same person who says that it's a halacha. That means it's weaved into the fabric of the universe that Esav hates Yaakov. So if Esav hates Yaakov and that somehow this is part of the unfolding of our reality and our history, then why is he going out of his way to say that this was a real kiss? Especially since there's another interpretation of what this kiss was. And that's the Medrash. All right, now you ready for this one? And Rashi brings it. It says, I'll give you like a few more words from the verse in the Torah. It says, now this is when they first see each other. Esav kisses Yaakov. He puts his, he kisses him on the neck. And Esav cries. So the Medrash says that what Esav tried to do was to bite the neck of Yaakov, like his jugular vein, to murder him. And that miraculously, Yaakov's neck turned to stone and Esav broke his teeth. And that's why Esav cried. Can you imagine like the, the story that's being filled in? Just the words of the Torah say that Esav kissed him on the neck and he cried. Yeah, he went to bite his neck to kill him and his teeth shattered and he cried from the pain of that. Whoa, these are very two different interpretations, wouldn't you say? And isn't it mysterious that the one who says that Esav hates Yaakov, that this is a halacha, that he's the one who says that it was a sincere kiss? How do you reconcile all these different these different ideas. Okay, so we're going to get to it. We're going to get to it. And again, we still haven't forgotten about our question that we posed earlier. Why is Yaakov named Israel at two separate junctures? First the angel does it, and then... First the angel does it, and then God does it. Why that repetition? Okay, so we're going, to get, we're going to get to all these things. But let's talk about this kiss, because this kiss really is touching on our lives right now. You know, unfortunately, one of the big subjects of the day, unfortunately, unfortunately, and it seems to be only getting to be more the case, is anti-Semitism. So throughout Jewish history, Anti-Semitism has brought the Jewish people together. Of course, it's also triggered untold deaths and hardships and suffering. But in terms of us as a people, it's only bound us together more strongly. And when nations have said to us, you can't keep the mitzvahs, you can't be Jewish, we've responded by, oh, we'll show you that we're going to be Jewish. Even if it means giving up our lives, we're going to be Jewish. Don't tell us we can't be Jewish. We're going to be Jewish. That's, that's what it is. So their force of hatred has made us 
more Jewish. Okay. Then there's another kind of chapter, and it's the chapter that we're in now. And this is much more subtle. This is when the nations, and it doesn't happen too often, but believe me, look at America today for a perfect example of this version, where the nations have said to us, you want to be Jewish, be Jewish. You don't want to be Jewish, don't be Jewish. You want to marry our daughters, marry our daughters. <laughs> you, want to, you want to do business with us, do business with us. And we don't care. Either way, it's all good. Whatever you want, it's good with us. This is the kiss of Esav. Now, the kiss of Esav has had very, very devastating effects on our people. Do you know why? There's a psychological dynamic called script-antiscript. Okay? I described that a few moments ago. Script-antiscript goes like this. You can't do this. And they say, oh, yeah, you're telling me I can't do it? Well, I'm going to do it. Okay? That's called script-antiscript, right? Very reactive. But what happens when that outside force stops telling you that you can't do something? What happens when opposition disappears? Then, in order to do it, you have to want to do it. Not only do you have to want to do it, but you have to know what it is that you have to do to begin with. Do you know if you went up to most Jews in America today and you asked them, what, what, what does it mean to be a Jew? What is a Jew? They couldn't answer that question in a coherent way. Right? Most people say, I have a Jewish mother. So when I was born, it was tag, you're it. And so that's why I'm Jewish. Beyond that, I really couldn't tell you. So there, without being overly dramatic, but I actually mean these words very seriously, there is a plague of ignorance on our people. A plague of ignorance. We don't know what it means to be Jewish. We don't know what the Torah is. We don't know. So how am I, if in the face of, if you take away all script, anti-script from me, if you take away all threats that you can't do this, now I know I have to do it. If you take all that away from me and I don't even know what it is that I'm supposed to do, how am I supposed to do it? I don't even know what any of this means. How am I supposed to do it if it all has to come from me? And that's where we're at today. And do you know what the end result of that is? Complete assimilation. Total intermarriage. There are parts of the country, like San Francisco, for instance, where intermarriage is up to something like 75%. Can you imagine? Millions of people are, they call it, I think, unidentified, right? They don't identify with anything in terms of their... Judaism. This is the kiss of Asif. Millions of Jews, millions, in the millions, right? In the millions, millions of Jews in America today have disappeared, fallen off the map. And, and not because of any gas chambers. This is the kiss of Asif. Now, the kiss of Esav 
has a positive side, potentially. And what that positive side is, is that what do you think is like the, the more developed individual? The one who's told that they have to do something, who's threatened to do something, or the one who just like embraces it, right? Like, I'll tell you something. I, I, I did not grow up in, a, in an Orthodox home. And I started going to Reb Shlomo Karlbach Shul on 79th Street and Western Avenue in New York City when I was 14. And he inspired this inside of me to, to, to want to know more, to want to do more. And I can tell you, I was with him over a period of 18 years. And I never heard him tell anybody to do anything. He would inspire people and then they would want to do it themselves which made for like rock solid, like personalities, you know, like people were like, this is what I want. It was in their bones. This is what I want to do. This is who I am. Someone and the person who this happened to told me himself. So I heard this firsthand during Rip Shlomo's lifetime. He came up to Rip Shlomo and he, and he, he said to him, I want you to tell me a Torah, like a Torah teaching, just for me. And he told me what Rib Shlomo responded. You ready? He said, he said to him, most people think that I want less from them. But the truth is, is that I want more from them. But how did Rib Shlomo get the more out of the person? By allowing their identity and their desire to keep Shabbos, to keep the mitzvahs to come from them. And I know I'm a, I'm a living example of this. I am a living, breathing example that when, when it happens, when it works, you know, I mean, believe me, I, I would not be talking to you right now if, if not for, for what Reb Shlomo did. And he allowed it to concretize within me to the point where it's like, you know, whatever I learn, I'm, I'm desperate to share with people. But that's also the kiss of Esav, because the kiss of Esav leaves you on your own, and now you have to really kind of work to become that person. You have to desire and really want to become that person. But you know, in order to become that person, you have to know what it means to be a Jew. I heard Rabbi David Aaron say the other day that the word Jew comes from, from the word hodah, right? Which means to, to be grateful and to thank. So a Jew is one who is mindful and appreciative, thankful, grateful. That's, that's where the word comes from. Okay, so now let's get to the naming because this is going to tie into what we just said. So, you know, your name is your mission. Your name is a description of your soul. And it says that one of the last vestiges of prophecy today is that the parent gets a bit of prophecy what the name of the child is. 
meaning to say what the mission of the child is in this world. Isn't that interesting? Because your name is your mission. And if you want to explore like who you are or what you're supposed to accomplish more deeply, one of the ways of doing it is just kind of looking at your Hebrew name. And by the way, if you don't have a Hebrew name, I definitely recommend that you get a Hebrew name. And you can go, go to a, a shul and they'll give you a name by the Torah, or you can tell them what your name is, what name you've select, or you can talk to someone, you know, who's wise and can help you figure out a, a name and get named by the Torah on Shabbos. Sponsor the Kiddush, right? Like make a little party for it. And, and that'll be a really good thing to help bring clarity into your life. Because, you know, we're, we're, we've grown up, most of us, in such an upside-down world, an upside-down generation. Many of us don't even have Hebrew names. But you can rectify that. Anyway, your name is your mission. So it seems to me, and I can't prove this, but I'm just sharing a thought that I have, that it's not that the prophetic aspect is that you're knowing the mission that God has sent for your child, and that's the prophecy. But rather, the child is already born with a soul with the name imprinted on it, and through prophecy, you're able to see what your child is telling you their mission is. That's what I think. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I think. That's what the prophecy is. You're able to read into the soul of your child, and your child is telling you what their job is in this world. By the way, it's an important explanation of why when people get sometimes Rahman al-Islan sick, that they get a name added to them. Sometimes, you know, it's like Chaim or Baruch or something like that, like life or blessed, right, in English. But what's the deeper idea there? is that, you see, if you finish, when a person finishes their job in this world, then they go on to the next world. They're all done. So if a person gets sick and we want to add years to their life, the idea is that if we can add a name, we're also adding an extra mission. So they have to stay in this world because they have an extra job that needs to get done. So that's a deeper understanding of why we add a name to someone who's sick that they have more work to do, and they have to stay in this world to finish that job. Okay, so now we see Yaakov is, has a name added to him, and it's Israel. Okay, that's all of us. That's where the name Israel comes from, right? So one time I thought to myself, well, what's the difference between these two names? And I thought, well, why don't I take the gematria of Yisrael, Israel, and Yaakov, and I'll subtract them. And then the difference will be, you know, they will tell me something special. It will tell me the difference between the two names. Anyway, I did the math, and I almost fell out of my chair. Because do you know what the gematria is? The gematria of the word Mashiach. Can you believe that? It's actually imukolel, it's plus one, it's 359, but that's the difference between those two words, Mashiach. And I was talking with my friend Pinchas Gelb this week, we were talking about it, and I was saying to him, you know, I wish that it wasn't Israel minus Jacob equals Mashiach. I wish that it was 
Yaakov plus Mashiach equals Yisrael. And he said, it is. And it is, by the way, mathematically, it's the same way of saying the same thing. But in this version, we're just starting with Yaakov. Then we're adding Mashiach and we get to Israel and the math works out. But how do we understand that? What does that mean exactly? And he sort of enlightened me and I'm going to add to his words as well. The Or HaChayim gives a famous explanation and, and he points out something interesting, which is that, you know, when, when Abraham, Avraham, gets his name changed, his name is originally Avram, and this letter He is added, and now it becomes Avraham. And we talked about that on a very deep level. That, that's, there, there's tons and tons of Torah about that He, okay? So, so it's actually Nevera, it's against the Torah, once his name has been changed to Avraham, to refer to him as Avraham. Yitzchak, interestingly, doesn't have a name change. Yitzchak represents Gavura, Din, that's like this rock-solid entity that doesn't have to change, you know, in terms, on a name level anyway. So that, that's striking. And now you have Yaakov and Yisrael. What's interesting is after the angel and Hashem changes his name to Yisrael, the text goes back and forth calling him Yaakov and Yisrael. So why? Why? Why is this different from, say, the case of Avraham, where once it becomes Avraham, that's all it is in the Torah is Avraham. And the Yorchayim says, and the context of each of these instances supports what he says perfectly, which is that when, when this human being, Yaakov, is dealing in a sort of a more, in, in a place of constricted consciousness, right? He's kind of, kind of dealing with the kind of like the more mundane aspects of this world. He's called Yaakov in the Torah. But when he is in a place of expanded consciousness, he's called Yisrael, Israel. So that's, that's interesting. That is interesting. And it goes back and forth. So the Or HaChayim is addressing it on the level of the individual. But now if you look at the way Hashem changes Yaakov's name a little bit later, it's different. He says in the future tense, your name will be, yeah, your name will be Israel. Ah, that's interesting. So it's kind of like a future, more aspirational kind of thing. So what I would like to say, based on that, is something I heard in the name of the Zohar, the following thing, which is one of the many, many different levels that the Torah scroll is operating on, is that it's also a timeline for the history and future of the world. And you know what is so interesting? What does God say? Your name will be Israel. Do you know what the very last word of the Torah scroll is? The very, very last word. In other words, the end of time. It's the word Israel. Isn't that interesting? So seen in that way, 
There's the up and down within each of our individual lives. We go from the Yaakov state of constricted consciousness to the Israel state of expanded consciousness, sometimes multiple times a day. But then there's also the world level, the consciousness of the world. And the consciousness of the world is going to also go through a transformation from the Yaakov state to the end of days, the last word of the Torah, the Israel state. And now let's revisit that gematria. Yaakov plus Mashiach equals Israel. That actually works on a mathematical level. Isn't that fascinating? And now it's going to also give us an answer to how to survive the kiss of Esav. You see, without opposition, in the presence of the kiss, you need a mission. If you don't have a mission, you're not going to make it through. You need a personal mission. And the mission is the mission of the Jewish people, which is we're here to bring about the completion of the world. Remember, everybody's got the same question. If there's a God, why is the world so messed up? And the answer is because it's not finished yet. The world is not finished yet. And that's why we were created, to be partners with God to finish the world. And how do we do it? By putting more light into the world. What are the triggers? What are the light triggers? Those are the mitzvot. Those are the commandments. When we do that, we fill the world with light. We bring the world to this more exalted plane. That's what we're doing. And when we're united by that sense of mission, we go from our constricted state to our exalted state. And what is that? What's shorthand for that mission? What are we talking about? So the shorthand for that, that, that mission is Mashiach, right? See, there's so much fighting in the world because people want to say, that person's Mashiach, no, that person's Mashiach. God will pick who it is. And when God picks who it is, the entire world is going to recognize it. The more important thing is not the individual himself, although it will be exactly the way the Rambam describes it in Hilkos Malachim. It will be a Jew. It will be a Torah scholar. He hasn't come yet. Right? God doesn't need multiple chances to get it right. He hasn't come yet. He will come. The whole idea of Mashiach is 10,000% Jewish. It's been adopted by other religions, but its source and origin is 100% Jewish. But the point is, the greater idea of Mashiach is it's the next era of humanity. Let's just kind of contextualize the individual for a moment. It will be who the Rambam describes. But beyond that, the greater teaching is that humanity is destined for an era of peace. That the world is not finished yet. That we're getting to that place that God had in mind from the very start before he even created the world. Where there's no war, where there's no hunger, where there's no hatred. Where there's no obstacles to serving God, where God's oneness is revealed. To everyone, Jew, non-Jew, to all of his children. That's what we're heading toward. But you need a sense of mission. 
especially in an era where people go, you want to be religious, be religious. You don't want to be religious, you know, whatever you like. What, what better way is there to deaden, <laughs> to deaden the drive inside of us unless you want it, unless you understand that you are here for a reason? Then it will come out of you even stronger. Okay, I want to finish, and I want to tell you something really interesting. I, I think this is amazing, personally, and moving also. And I heard it from Reb Shlomo, but it's right in the text itself. You can just look at it and you can see for yourself. Yaakov bows down to Esav seven times before he sees him. And then all of Yaakov's family members, his wives and his children, all bow down to Esav, which the Medrash is not crazy about. They're not crazy about the fact that they bow down to this oppressor, this, this, this person who symbolizes negativity, that they made any sort of accommodation to him at all. But there are other teachings that they had different intentions by bowing down. But anyway, they all bowed down. That's the point. Except one. Benjamin. Benjamin doesn't bow down. And why is that so significant? First of all, Benjamin, Benjamin is in the womb of Rachel at the time. Okay? That's why he doesn't bow down. But what's so significant about that? Because when the Jews entered into the land of Israel, the land was divided up among the tribes. And do you know what section of Israel was given to Benjamin, to Benjamin? The Holy of Holies inside the Holy Temple. The Holy of Holies. Do you know what that means? That means there's a place in this world that was never subjugated to evil and never bowed down to evil. And do you know what else it means? That that place is inside of each and every one of us. There's a, there's a part of you that never made an accommodation to evil ever, ever. You know, interestingly, the descendant of Benjamin, of Benjamin, is Mordechai, HaYehudi, who doesn't bow down to Haman. Isn't that interesting? A direct descendant from Benjamin. But it's in every single one of us as well. In other words, that sense of mission, that spark of light is inside of every single one of us. And no matter how thick the encasement is around our hearts, that spark is still there and it never bowed down. It never ever bowed down. And so, so that's it. That's it. That's it. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.